down in the grip of oppression I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends But when I'm attacked I protect and defend Because my name is America Welcome everyone, this is Karen Schoen and you'll be listening to the Prism of America's Education brought to you on the America Out Loud talk radio network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance, and that is GoFLCA.com. Please join the Alliance, find out what the Alliance is doing, and please do it in your state. There is no reason why Florida is, quote, the only free state in the country. That is absurd. But Again, it's up to us, we the people. This is our country. And if we're going to let the criminals take it over, then it will become a criminal enterprise. And if we don't have oversight of the people that we just elected to office, and frankly, I don't expect much to happen except that maybe new things will come out, quote, revelations like we see going on with Twitter. So since this is about the last show and this is the end of the year, the end of 22, we're going to be going into 23, I thought it would be a good idea if we do a little summary on the things that have happened and what we can look forward to in the new year. This is a new year and we need to have some new leadership, especially in the GOP. So I sincerely hope that Hermit Dillon becomes the head of the GOP and not Rhino Rana McDaniel, Rana Romney McDaniel. Don't forget her middle name because that is exactly the way she be, has behaved, especially in this last election. So let's talk about the election for a minute. Uh, everybody expected a quote red wave. And I believe that we were capable of doing it, but the leadership made sure that it did not happen. It almost to me feels like Mitch McConnell doesn't want to do anything. He's perfectly happy giving up leadership to Schumer and being a bobblehead saying, yes, sir, yes, sir. And that's what is happening. And right now, uh, let us make sure that we get a hold of those that are fighting the CR continuing resolution and the NDAA. We do not want these passed this year, folks, because all this is going to be is another money laundering scheme so that we can find out how many monkeys will die if they don't have sex with each other or some stupid nonsense. Uh, that's what we're funding, folks, those kind of stupid grants, because they are really a shill for the donors who will then take the money, turn around and donate it back to the Democrat Party. That's the way it works in America. But one thing has been troubling me, and I love to have my 
friend Claire Lopez join me because she's a wealth of information. And we can go through some of the things that have happened in the past year, bring them current and push them into the new year and see what's happening. Claire, one of the things that has been disturbing me the most are the machines in the election process. I don't believe that we can ever have a fair election. It doesn't matter how many votes we do for early voting. It doesn't matter what ID has. It doesn't make any difference once we have machines that are connected to the internet. I don't see us ever winning. Uh, What do you think, Claire? And thank you for joining me. Well, thank you, Karen, for having me. Glad to be with you this last show of 2022. Um, so I definitely agree with you. Um, you know, as, as far as getting um, electronics out of our elections, uh, when we say machines, by the way, we don't really mean machines. We simply mean computers. They're, they're laptops, essentially, that have um, software uh, loaded onto them. Uh, and as you say, sometimes connected to the internet when they should not be. Tabulators are the other kind of machines, and those are the ones that you feed your ballot into even after you've marked up a paper ballot and you feed it into a tabulator. That's a machine. But I, I, I definitely agree that um, you know anything that's not paper and pencil has to go. Uh, you, you vote with paper and pencil, and people count the paper ballots. And that's it. That's all. Um, I would think, Claire, the easiest way to do that is to go back to the old precincts where people would go to their local high school and vote, or they would go to their mm -hmm. local administrative office and vote. And you'd have about a thousand or 2000 people voting in one place. And there was a lot of places to vote. And that made it easy for counting the vote. This well, idea agreed that, that, that the votes, yeah, ought to be counted at the precinct level also. You vote at the precinct level on paper ballots with paper and pencil, and they get counted at the precinct level. That that I agree with you there as well. Well, I, I was a poll worker this year, and I worked what was on, in Florida called the EVID machine, and I had to match the people's signature with their photo ID. But what I noticed, and I have to make a good comment for the woman who is our supervisor of election, she did a terrific job. But I had a question and I said, okay, we have this tabulator and the tabulator, you count how many votes there are, but the tabulator doesn't say how many votes were Republican, how many votes were Democrat, or how many votes were other. It just tells you how many. So how do we know that in that tabulation, those vote totals are not switched around? We have no idea. And then another thing was I said, is this um, uh, EVID machine, is it connected to the internet? And the answer that I got was, no, it's connected to MiFi. Well, MiFi is Wi-Fi. It's just an M instead of a W. And it means exactly the same thing. So somewhere in the cloud, who knows what could have been happening? Now, I don't think it did it at our precinct. But this is things that we have to be on the lookout for, because I believe that this is the most serious issue that we have is getting rid of those uh, tabulators and anything that is connected to the Internet. I don't see any way for us to win anything 
even a vote in our county commissioner or our school board if we are going to continue to use software that is connected to the internet. So that's something that we have to have oversight and we have to be looking at and we have to be pushing our newly elected officials to change the election law and get rid of all types of equipment that is connected to the internet. That would be my first choice. On a looking forward basis, Claire, I think another topic that we should be looking at is food. Because from what I'm reading, we are going to be having a big problem in 2023. And I know that you have been paying a lot of attention to that. So what is your take on what's going on with the Netherlands and Germany and how they're closing their farms? Are they that stupid? Well, unfortunately, yes. Um, here in the United States, uh, we're going to be okay. Domestically, we produce plenty and enough to feed ourselves. Now, the price, the cost will be another question, right? Uh, but in terms of quantity, there's no problem in the United States. The problem you're talking about with these European countries like the Netherlands and like Germany is that they're, uh, they're, they're, they're greeny wing, wing nuts, um, you know, have gotten a hold of uh, government policy. And the Netherlands, folks may not know, uh, is the number two exporter of agricultural products in the world. That means second to us, to the United States. Netherlands That's scary. Is, is the second largest exporter of food. But there, as in Germany, uh, the greeny wingnuts are um, trying to reduce the acreage of farmland uh, because, I don't know, cows belch or something and and uh, they they want to take land out of production uh in in the interests of i don't know reducing human population or or i, I i'm just not clear at all but it's absolutely insane well, I think you hit it, the nail on the head when you said reducing human population, because going back to Agenda 21, which I believe was the grandmaster plan that all of these other plans come from, uh, their goal was definitely to reduce the human population. They feel that humans are the enemy of the planet. Tell me how that's possible. What we are doing is improving life. We're not doing anything to deter life, we are improving life. And when you eat healthy and good produce and not processed food, you're healthier. That's, that's the way it works. But now I'm remembering what happened in uh, World War II and with Mao. What did they do? They took out the farmers, turned the farmland into state land, and then expected who? The executives? to run the farms. No wonder why the farms failed. And in the case of Mao, I think 40 million people were exterminated. And I know with Stalin, he destroyed, I think, 30 million Ukrainian farmers, which at that time was the breadbasket of the world. So this to me is a crash course to kill the populace by going through and determining that the earth is overpopulated. That's not true either, is it? No, it's not true at all. Um, with, with modern technology, modern, modern farming and agricultural uh, methods, 
um, we have been able within the last century, we writ large, uh, but especially in the United States, to um, to 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 produce vastly more product, more produce, more crops uh, from the same or less smaller uh, amount of acreage. So, um, you know, it, it, we, we we've improved things. Um, yes, farm equipment, harvesters and combines and tractors need diesel fuel to run. Um, and yes, modern day farming does require fertilizer and pesticides. These are not bad things. These are positive things um, to produce um, more and ever more uh, crops, as I said, from the same or uh, even a smaller amount of acreage. But um, that, that's not the problem. I mean, we, we can very easily produce enough food, we, the world, um, you know, for the population that we currently have, which is somewhere in the range of, I guess, eight or eight and a half billion, I think. Uh, that's not a problem at all. There's plenty of land um, for growing crops. Um, there, there is not too much population at all. And by the way, if these Europeans, uh, these nut jobs over there, are worried about population, well, they more or less have stopped having babies. Uh, the population birth rate uh, in so many European countries um, is is off off a cliff. Uh, they, they're simply not having children. I guess uh, you know they 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 enjoy um, you know a prosperous uh, leisurely lifestyle um, and uh, you know going and marching in in uh, you know green movement protests. I suppose takes up their time. You can't you know do that and have children. So they're already diminishing their own population here in the United States, too. Um, our uh, per woman, per lifetime uh, number of children is well below replacement level, which would be 2.1 children per woman, per lifetime. Uh, we're down in the range of, I don't know what it is, 1.6, 1.6, 1.7, somewhere in there. And uh, it is only immigration that is keeping our population well keeping it and growing it uh but you know illegal population illegal aliens flooding over our unprotected southern border that's not the answer no it is definitely not the answer but um going back to and why the depopulation to me is so important after reading a lot of their information I think it just boils down to a very simple quote from Stalin when he said, less people, less problems. And that's what they focus on. They're, so they have dreamed up a multitude of, of programs to eliminate population. Here's an interesting quote that I just found, and it said, we need to get some broad-based support to capture the public's imagination. So we have to offer up scary scenarios, make simplified dramatic statements, and make little mention of any doubts. Each of us has to decide the right balance of what is being effective in climate and what is being honest. And that was said by Professor Stephen Snyder, who was a Stanford 
professor on climatology, and he was the leading author of many IPCC reports, and that is the Intergovernmental Panel on uh, Climate Control. And folks, you can't control the climate. Doesn't not going to make any difference. There's nothing we can do about it. What we should be doing, what our government should be doing, is teaching people how to live within the variety of climate changes that we experience. But that's not their goal. And like I said, everything is connected. I think that this broad brush of depopulation has filtered into and is really the motivation between behind every single policy that they have put in place. Because each one of these policies, whether it is teaching kids the horrors of growing up so they have to change a gender because they can't live in the world that they have been uh, brought into and they can't live in the body that they're living in. So teaching people to do that reduces population. Promoting the LGBTQ population controls population. And of course, now they are figuring out a way to take the mentally ill and teach them how to have that assisted suicide is better for them than living being mentally ill. So the destruction of the family, the destruction of morality gives people a sense of hopelessness. And when people are hopeless, they are vulnerable. And they will believe anything. So here Europe has based its entire climate policies on that of a 16-year-old who was frightened to death by what she saw. Isn't that unbelievably horrible? What leaders are these people? They are not leaders at all, folks. They are destroyers. And unfortunately, in America, they are in both parties. We call them rhinos in the Republican Party. And in the Democrat Party, we just call them Democrats because that's exactly what they want. So what do you think about depopulation, Claire? Is it evident in all of the policies that we have? You know, I don't think it's even so much the policies. Um, they may jabber on, you know, in between sipping their Chablis at Davos about that sort of thing. But that's not what's happening. What's happening is that as populations become uh, wealthier, uh, become more comfortable, um, become more educated, and it doesn't matter what part of the world you're talking about, North America, South America, Europe, Asia, any place at all you're talking about, when human populations uh, reach a point of I don't know, comfortableness for whatever reason. Maybe this is our fatal flaw. Uh, going back to, you know, Greek plays, the fatal flaw of the human race is that once we get comfortable, somehow we stop having children. We are not bound anymore um, by previous need for children to, let's say, work the farmland. Um, there is no more um, uh, or, or a much lesser, I should say, a much lesser influence uh, by, by various faith uh, groups uh, on people uh, who, who disregard those things. Um, and the net result, it, it, it's not about Davos. It's not the World Economic Forum. It's not that. It's people reaching a point of um, enough to eat, good shelter, 
leisure time, machines to do the work, um, and uh, children cost money. Children are <laughs> they're <laughs> lovely and wonderful, uh, but but they they take a lot. They take a lot to raise. When uh, you just sparked something with me, because when people are taught that they are the feature, I, I, me, me, everything focuses around me, uh, there is no God, I'm the God, and all of those things that our children are now learning, they don't want to share. They become so selfish that bringing a child into the world now becomes, oh, I have to share that with my kid. Ooh, I have. So you have this kind of feeling that I'm the most important thing and I don't want to share it with anybody else. So therefore, I'm not going to have children. And I think that also plays into this as well. It's a mindset that we have been giving our kids since they have been in kindergarten, um, showing, showing them the horrors of family life and how important it is to have a different life. And as soon as that happens and we lose our morality and we only focus on the I button, there's no room for anyone else. So we don't think about what Claire has been saying. And there will come a time when we will not be able to recreate and reproduce uh, ourselves over again because we have stopped having children. And that is a really, really bad idea. You know, Karen, I'll add one thing in here too. And that is that since the, um, the genetic therapy that people call vaccines, um, since that was rolled out, uh, basically worldwide in 2021, those populations, those, those nations and people, um, that, that were most uh, they, they had the greatest uptake of, of these shots, have seen their birth rates uh, take a nosedive. Wow. And we know now, of course, you know, that uh, the, the, uh, the lipid nanoparticle uh, sac in, in, in which the mRNA is delivered into the human body becomes lodged um, in ovaries, uh, the reproductive systems of young women. Uh, also apparently affecting uh, the young men uh, as well and their uh, ability to to be fathers. And so that's another uh, you know factor to to bring into this mix here as we're talking about population. Um, look at the charts from Europe, from places that that you know vaccinated madly, wildly, without any any consideration for the consequences. and Unfortunately, their birth rates are taking a nosedive. Oh, how sad and how true that is. And I am reminded of the science czar that we had under Obama, whose name was John Holdren. And what John used to say was, people shouldn't have children without the government giving them a license to have children. And we should be giving them uh, vaccines that will inhibit uh, uh, that will inhibit the mom from being able to carry. And when she wants to, uh, then she'll have to come to the government to get a license. 
I, is that where all of this is going? I see that happening, especially as we are now going to be facing this digital currency, which will probably say, oh, you want to have a child? Well, we'll diminish this on your currency and diminish that and diminish something else. So this is a whole connected mess aimed at depopulating the planet so that the rich can get richer and make the poor poorer, as they say, and put us in a position that if we have children, it will be to our own detriment. And I see that happening based on what these people have said before. What do you think, Claire? Well, I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm not um, completely convinced uh, about all of that. Um, I do think that the uh, the side effects of uh, these gene therapy shots uh, were not foreseen, uh, at least in their entirety. Yes, a lot of the side effects were foreseen. We know that now from uh, emails that are that are being released. And thank you, Elon Musk at Twitter. Um, but because uh, the human and clinical trials for these shots were so abbreviated down to mere months, instead of there's a reason why genuine vaccines take five to 10 years for the clinical trials to play out so that uh, we can see what the effects long-term are upon various populations, the older population, uh, the children, pregnant women, and so forth. That wasn't done in this case. Um, I'm not sure that all of these um, horrible side effects were foreseen, but we do know now that a lot of them were foreseen and they tried to cover it up. So why are they pushing the vaccine more if they because know that these side effects? Make a lot of money. That's, ah, <laughs> that's it. That's the that's answer. That's the answer. That's all it is. That, all, no. that is all it is. That's I mean, I will say that, that I, I, I don't think that, for example, the United States, um, you know, leadership under the Trump administration, um, President Trump himself, I don't think he had any idea, you know, what what the downstream effects of Operation Warp Speed would be. He was guided by people he should not have trusted who sold him on, on doing this in Warp Speed time. And that was a humongous mistake. Personnel mistakes were probably President Trump's uh, most most serious errors. And in this case, we're talking about an Anthony Fauci and a Deborah Burks and a Francis Collins and a Rochelle Walensky and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but but they were misled. So I, I, I don't want to say that, you know, there was malign intent everywhere. But I do think that at the top levels of uh, the pharmaceutical companies, I'm talking about Moderna and Pfizer and AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson and whomever else. Uh, and the incestuous relationship that they have with our public health institutions like uh, the FDA um, and the uh, NIH, the National Institutes of Health, uh, the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, um, NIAID, uh, Fauci's um, uh, outfit under the NIH, uh, that's uh, National Institutes for Allergy and uh, Infectious Disease, et cetera. The incestuous relationship between big pharma and with our federally funded government public health institutions, that has got to be cut legislatively at the federal level, 
Congress. Got to cut that 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 connection there because that I think is what led um, to to this utter disaster, um, you know, of of these these shots that that so many people got and and are now suffering and dying by the tens and tens of thousands all over the world. And don't go away. We will be right back. You're listening to Karen Schoen. This is the Prism of America's Education brought to you on the America Out Loud talk radio network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance. Go FLCA.com. Be right back. Cold and flu season is here. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to minimize airborne viral threats? Well, now there is, and it's a pulvidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray called Cofix RX. You might even say it's just what the doctor ordered. To reduce your chance of getting hurt, you wear a safety belt when you're driving. To limit sun damage, you wear sunscreen on the beach. Cofix RX is just like that. It's an additional layer of protection. It's sold by thousands of pharmacists and medical doctors nationwide. It's made right here in the USA. Again, it's a pulvidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray. You've heard them talk about it here on the Outloud Network over and over again. Check out cofixrx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com for a retailer near you or use coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off at cofixrx.com. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. the silent voices be heard. It was the rallying call that started it all. It's a wide spectrum of programming, from world and political news to societal and cultural stories. Six amazing years of news blogs, informative podcasts, and great talk radio. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back, everyone, and this is probably going to be the last show before the holiday season, and that is really a time that we should be spending with our families. Yes, we have a political mess that we will have to clean up in January 23. However, during this time, I think we should pause, reflect, Enjoy our families, enjoy what America has brought to us, even though we have problems, we are still the greatest country in the world, and there isn't any place that I would rather be, and I'm sure most of you all feel the same. There isn't any place to go, folks. No matter where you go, you always have the same thing, which is America is the best. Well, Right now, we are in the middle, as I said, of holiday season, and usually two holidays come together. One was Hanukkah, and that was 139 BC, so that was before Christ. The story of Hanukkah is quite miraculous, and it is called the Festival of Lights. Why? Because 
over the ark where the Torah is kept is a light, and that light is called the eternal light. That light is never to go off. It lights the way for people to always find the Torah, which is the book of laws that the Jewish people follow. As usual, the Jews were being being ostracized, they were being overrun, uh, they were constantly in turmoil, and this time there was a war with the Greeks. The Greeks went to the Holy Temple and they destroyed the oil that was used to light the Holy Light. The people of what has now become Israel found one jar that had oil in it. It was enough for one day. And they decided that they would rather have the oil for one day than no oil at all. So they lit the oil and miraculously it stayed lit for eight days until new oil was brought into the temple. And that's why we call Hanukkah the festival of lights, because we remember that God created a miracle to light the way to the Torah. Hanukkah is usually celebrated at the end of, I think it's Kiv, which is the Jewish calendar is 13 months, not 12. Uh, we follow the lunar calendar. So there are 28 days in each of the months. And at the end of the season is Hanukkah. Hanukkah is usually just before Christmas or maybe during Christmas, or maybe slightly after Christmas, but usually it comes between November and December. And there's wonderful food that goes along with it, plus kids get a present every day for the eight days. So it is a joyous time that we celebrate the Festival of Lights and the fact that we had a miracle which led the way to the Torah, and that was the oil being lit. And in the interim, we fought off the Greeks. And that was always a good thing because the temple remained standing. Well, that's a little bit about Hanukkah. And since I'm Jewish, I don't know as much about Christmas as my favorite Christmas storyteller or my great storyteller, because he knows so much about history, Bill Federer. You wrote a new book, Bill, and you wrote a book about Christmas. Can you share that with everyone? I'm so excited. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, called There Really Is a Santa Claus, The History of St. Nicholas and Christmas Holiday Tradition. Uh, one of the uh, first things I bring out in the book is the date of uh, Christmas. A little background. Um, the Jewish tradition was not to celebrate birthdays. Uh, matter of fact, that's still the way it is in several countries over in the Middle East, uh, Turkey. And, and of course, in Korea, everyone turns a year older on January 1st. Uh, they don't celebrate individual birthdays. Uh, celebrating birthdays uh, was actually considered pagan. And it wasn't until a lot of Jews or Gentiles began to convert to Christianity, uh, had the question of when was Jesus born. So the first three centuries of Christianity, the big date was Passover because Jesus was crucified on Passover. And since, as you mentioned, it was a lunar calendar, the Christians would ask the, the rabbis, when's Passover this year? And that's when they would celebrate uh, Easter. Um, and so it's a little bit of a detective story uh, to uh, find the uh, birthday of Jesus. 
And it goes back to uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 5. It says, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. Herod is uh, died in 4 B.C., and so this would have been around 4 B.C. Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist, and he's of the priestly division of Abijah. What's that? King David divided the Levites into 24 divisions, uh, family groups, and uh, they each took uh, a week twice a year in the temple doing all of the work uh, of the sacrifices and so forth. And, and Zechariah belongs to the family of Abijah uh, division. And so, but when is this? Nobody knew uh, the order that King David had put together because it's not actually in the scriptures. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in 1947 in, had the order of the Levites. And lo and behold, Abijah is the division number eight. And uh, But we don't know when they start. Uh, and that's when... Uh, the temple of in Jerusalem, the second temple, was destroyed on the 9th of Av in 70 AD, which in the Roman calendar uh, is equivalent to around August 4th. In the records, it shows that the priestly division that was on duty when the temple was destroyed was the family of Jehoiarib. And so he's family division number one. And so if family division number one is the first week of August, then eight weeks later, it is a little bit of a detective story in figuring out the date of Christmas. Uh, it goes back to uh, John the Baptist's father being in uh, the family division of Abijah, which was on duty of September 23rd. So the, the Byzantine Rite Church calendar marks September 23rd as the conception of John the Baptist, as does an early work called the Second Century Proto-Evangelium of St. James. And so if um, John the Baptist is conceived September 23rd, the Gospel of Luke says that the angel appeared to Mary and told her she was going to conceive of the Holy Spirit and that her cousin Elizabeth was in her sixth month. And so six months after September 23rd would have been around March 23rd. And uh, lo and behold, the uh, traditional date for celebrating the date that the angel appeared to Mary, which is called the Annunciation, is March 25th. And so that would line up. And nine months after March 25th is December 25th. So that's the sort of detective story of coming up with December 25th. Susan K. Rowell wrote in Toward the Origins of Christmas, published in 1995. She says, the early church father named Chrysostom, John Chrysostom, counts off the months of Elizabeth's pregnancy and dates Mary's conception from the sixth month of Elizabeth, then counts off another nine months to arrive at the birth date of Christ. Uh, some people say, well, wasn't um, December 25th to sort of take the place of the Roman Saturnalia? Uh, which was the winter solstice celebration. Well, that's December 21st to 22nd. That's the shortest day of the year. Uh, and so it's not December 25th. And um, and then some other people say, well, uh, it was wintertime in Jerusalem. And so there would not have been the shepherds in the field. And um, 
yet the climate of Jerusalem is similar to Flagstaff, Arizona. Um, when you compare the climate uh, dates and uh, temperatures and so forth. And so it's not uh, really cold, maybe 40 degrees at, at nighttime and 60 during the day. And um, and since they had daily sacrifices, there would have been sheep in the field all year round there. So, so th there is a, we're not being dogmatic about it, but there is justification that the um, December 25th is, is the actual date. Um, in the um, book that I wrote, there really is a Santa Claus. I go through how the first three centuries of Christianity, there are 10 major persecutions. Uh, and originally it was persecutions of Jews and Christians. And then Nero sort of singled out uh, the Christians when he, uh, when Rome caught on fire, uh, conveniently burning down a poor area where he wanted to do building projects like the Circus Maximus and so forth. Um, and he blamed the burning on the Christians and then started the first major persecution of Christians, would wrap them in burlap, dip them in tar, stick them on poles called Nero's you know, torches and so forth in his garden. Um, and so uh, there were three centuries of this type of persecution. And the, in the year 285 AD, there's an emperor named Diocletian, and he uh, loses some battles with Persia, asks his generals why. They said it's because you've neglected the Roman gods. So he orders all the military to return to worshiping the Roman gods. The previous emperor, uh, Galerius, had been lax. And so there were a lot of Christians in the military, and they could not return to worshiping the Roman gods. So they were forced out. Once Diocletian had him out, he decided to use the military to force the entire Roman Empire to return to worshiping the Roman gods. And he started this worst of all persecutions, going province by province, tearing down churches, arresting pastors, cutting out their tongues, boiling them alive, burning scriptures and so forth. And then uh, it was during this time that Nicholas is born. And so he lived in Myra which is today Demre, Turkey. Um, but back then it was uh, a coastal city. He, a movement was sweeping through Christianity at this time, <clears throat> beginning of the monastic movement. And it was this idea that if you really become a Christian, you should give away all your money, become poor. Sort of like Jesus told the rich young ruler, you know, one thing you lack, give away all your money to the poor, then come and follow me. And, and so this movement was sweeping through and so Nicholas decided he was going to give away all his money and then joined a monastery in uh, Jerusalem called the uh, Monastery of Zion. Doesn't want to get the credit for giving the money away. He wants the credit to go to God. So he would sneak into the poor neighborhoods at nighttime and throw money in the window. And supposedly it landed in a shoe or a stocking that was drying by the fireplace. That's the origin of the tradition of secret gift giving. One of the stories that really became popular was a merchant in uh, the town of Patara had been gone bankrupt. The creditors were going to come and take his, his daughters. He had three beautiful daughters. Uh, he knew if they were taken, it would be a terrible life of prostitution. And so uh, the father thought he could hurry up and marry the daughters off, but he didn't have money for a dowry, and uh, which was needed for a legally recognized wedding. Nicholas hears the problem late one night, throws some money in the window. The oldest daughter is able to get married. He does it for his second daughter. And when he throws the money in for the third daughter, by this time, the dad is expecting it. He runs outside, catches him, 
And Nicholas makes him promise not to tell because he wants the credit to go to God and not to him. And so this was just a Greek tradition. So St. Nicholas is the most popular Greek Orthodox saint. He is to Greeks what St. Peter is to Roman Catholics. He's sort of like what St. Patrick is to Ireland. And that's what St. Nicholas is to the Greek Orthodox, just a very uh, popular uh, person. So Justinian in the 527 AD builds the big Hagia Sophia church in Constantinople. And he also builds a church, names it after Nicholas, in this little town of Demre. And then, interesting little trivia, the emperor of Russia, Vladimir the Great, decides that he's going to um, get rid of his pagan gods, throws them in the Dnieper River, and then decides he wants to embrace monotheism. He sends ambassadors to Constantinople, and they see this big, beautiful church that's 165 feet high, 102 foot across dome, four acres of gold mosaics. The ambassadors said they felt like they were walking into heaven, and and so they spoke Greek, the language of the New Testament. And so Vladimir converts to this Eastern Orthodox Christianity and adopts Nicholas as the patron saint of Russia. Then the, the Muslims invade, and they destroy churches and synagogues and and uh, artwork and museums and libraries, uh, sort of what some of the fundamental Muslims still do today. People forget in 846 AD, 11,000 Muslim warriors invaded Rome, Italy, and they trashed the Basilica of St. Peter's, and they trashed the bones of St. Peter and St. Paul. And so it was after this that Pope Leo decided to build the 39-foot wall around the Vatican, which is still there to this day. And so the threat of Muslims destroying graves was a real threat. And so in the year 1087, 1087, the Christians moved the bones of their famous St. Nicholas over to Italy, a little town called Bari, B-A-R-I. Pope Urban II dedicates the church. And then afterwards, this Pope Urban II goes to the Council of Claremont and begs these kings of Europe to send help to these Greek Orthodox Christians that are being killed by this Islamic invasion. They send help. It's called the First Crusade. And they end up sending nine of them. The Fourth Crusade was sort of a fiasco because that's when the Catholic West sort of sacks the Constantinople. And anyway, lots of stories there. But we wouldn't have a Santa Claus in Western Europe had it not been for the Islamic invasion of Eastern Europe. And so once the St. Nicholas traditions are in Italy, it becomes so popular that St. Francis of Assisi in 1223 decides to create the creche scene, the nativity scene, the Jesus, Mary, Joseph, donkeys in a manger, saying that we're getting distracted by all the gift giving. We need to get re back to the real reason for the season. Jesus was born in the manger. And then you have Martin Luther in the 1500s. By this time, there is a saint's day for every day of the year. Matter of fact, several saints for every day in the Churches are filled full of relics and side altars, and Martin Luther considers this a distraction from Christ. And so he clears out all of the, the uh, saints' statues, but the Germans like the gift-giving that was associated with St. Nicholas on December 6th. And so Martin Luther moves all the gift-giving to December 25th and says all gifts come from the Christ child. And the German pronunciation of Christ child is Chris Kindle, like Kinder care, kindergarten, kind means child, Chris means Christ. And so over the centuries, Chris Kindle got pronounced Chris Kringle. So Chris Kringle is really Chris Kindle, which means Christ child. The uh, tradition is that Martin Luther was walking home one night 
and saw stars twinkling, he decides to put candles in the branches of the uh, evergreen tree that's in uh, the, the German houses. The thought of lights on the tree probably came from, from Hanukkah. Uh, that because, as you mentioned, in 165 BC, they clean out the temple and they have the Feast of Dedication, also called the Festival of Lights. And so the Jewish tradition of putting lights in the windows, that would have been something that Martin Luther would have noticed, could have given him the idea to put lights in the tree. The tree is very interesting because the uh, Germans were these tribes that came across uh, and invaded Europe and they were pagan. And they worshipped uh, Thor, which is where you get the word Thor's Day or Thursday. And these Germanic tribes worshipped Woden, another pagan god. And that's where you get the, the name Woden's Day or Wednesday. So interesting, the Quakers would not say Wednesday and Thursday. They would call them fourth day and fifth day, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, uh, fourth day and fifth day, because they didn't want to say a pagan god's name of Woden and Thor. Germans worshipped Thor, who lived in a big oak tree in Geismar, Germany. And the same way St. Patrick left Britain around 400 AD and went as a missionary to these Druid pagans in Ireland, you had somebody from Britain named Boniface, also called Winfred, and around 722 A.D., same time the Muslims are invading Spain and France, um, this St. Boniface goes to Geismar, Germany, and he takes an axe and he chops down Thor's tree. And some people yell, stop him, and others say, well, if Thor's really a god, he can protect his own tree. Uh, and the story goes on that um, the same way St. Patrick used the three-leaf clover to teach the concept of the Trinity to these uh, Druid illiterate you know, Irish, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, three in one, um, is St. Boniface points at an evergreen tree and see it says, see, it looks in a triangular shape and it points toward heaven and it's evergreen. And so the, the tree, the pine tree was symbolic of Germans converting to Christianity. And so that's why they would have put them in their homes. And then again, Martin Luther put the lights in the tree and he could have got the idea of lights from Hanukkah. And then um, uh, it goes to Britain. So uh, quickly, uh, Henry VIII brings the Reformation to Britain, not because he had any spiritual experience. He just wanted another wife. And so the Pope wouldn't recognize his divorce. So he decides to make himself his own Pope. But he brings back, instead of the Chris Kindle, Christ child, he, he brings back an old Roman holiday called Saturnalia. And because Britain used to be a Roman colony, all the way back to Julius Caesar. And, uh, and so... Christmas was a became a party time, drinking, wassailing, you know, drinking booze, chasing women, partying and everything. Sort of like a Mardi Gras. People forget Mardi Gras used to be a spiritual day. It was the day before Lent when you would fast 40 days before Easter. And now it's this lewd party in New Orleans. That's sort of what happened with Christmas in England under Henry VIII. And so when the Puritans came along, they were strict and they... Um, they forbade Shakespeare from mentioning the name of God in his plays. And so that's when Shakespeare began to write Midsummer Night's Dream and, and the Twelfth Night, which was the Twelfth Night of Christmas. But by he does it as a Saturnalia, sort of Bacchus partying. And, um, and the Puritans eventually tear Shakespeare's theater down. They were so strict. And so the Puritans got 
took control of England and they outlawed Christmas. And this is when the Puritans came to America and they had a five shilling fine for anybody caught celebrating Christmas. It wasn't until the Germans and French and Dutch began to immigrate to America that they brought their Christmas traditions over. And the Dutch is probably the most interesting. So the same way that the Catholics say St. Peter's at the gates of heaven, well, he's really not, but that's sort of the same. Uh, the the Dutch do an, uh, a take from the book of Revelation where it says Jesus will return at the end of the world riding a white horse to judge the living and the dead, and the saints will come back with him riding white horses. And their attitude was St. Nicholas is a saint, so he'll be one of those riding a white horse. And he's so special that he gets to come back once a year for a little mini judgment, a little checkup on the kids. He was naughty, he was nice. And so the Dutch have St. Nicholas dressed as a bishop coming back once a year riding a white horse. And he has with him a little Moorish costumed helper, a little Muslim named Zwarte Piet. And they tell the kids, if you're good, Nicholas gives you present. If you're naughty, Zwarte Piet will put you in a gunny sack, take you back to Spain and sell you into Muslim slavery because the Muslims enslaved over a million Europeans. There were whole Catholic orders in Europe to collect alms and rescue people from Muslim slavery. Anyway, so these Dutch uh, settled New Amsterdam, which became New York. The Dutch brought over their St. Nicholas traditions, but the Dutch pronounced St. Nicholas Sinterklaas or Santa Claus. So Santa Claus is the Dutch pronunciation of St. Nicholas. Washington Irving writes a, a book about New York, but he's sort of like a embellishes it with lots of fictitious stuff. But he says, now St. Nicholas visits us once a year, riding in his wagon over the treetops, uh, throwing out presents down the chimneys. But he describes him not dressed as a bishop, but in a Dutch outfit of long trunk hose, a leather belt, boots, a stocking hat. Uh, and then you have Clement Moore in New York, and his family donates land for a, an Episcopal seminary. There's a park in New York called the Clement Moore Park that his family donated the land for. But Clement Moore writes a poem for his children, a visit from St. Nicholas. Twas a night for Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring. even stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas would soon be there. So we're still talking St. Nicholas, but now he's shrunk in size. He's a little right jolly plump old elf. Um, and then you go to the Civil War. Thomas Nast is the illustrator that gave us the Republican elephant and Democrat mule. Uh, he is the first one to put a North Pole sign behind a picture of St. Nicholas talking to the Union troops. And this was sort of a political jab at the South during the Civil War to say St. Nicholas belonged to the North. Prior to then, saints came from heaven, the celestial city, the New Jerusalem. <clears throat> and then you have Haddon Sundblom, who was a, a Jewish artist that came up with the Quaker Oats Man and the Aunt Jemima Syrup. Well, he is hired by Coca-Cola to do a picture of St. Nicholas drinking Coke, does it for 30 years, a new one. And since Coca-Cola pioneered mass marketing, this is the image that spread around the world. But you go back, there really was a guy who lived during the third century, who was persecuted by the Romans, who was a Christian bishop, who was generous and gave to the poor, and his name was Nicholas. So it's one of these stories that uh, spans 2,000 years, all of church history, uh, and every country gets to add in their own little piece of the, the story. Uh, but there really was a guy way back, and he was generous and gave to the poor. And so that's what we remember uh, out of his story. But this is just one of, one of the stories in the book that I wrote called There Really is a Santa Claus. Oh, that is wonderful, Bill. And everybody, please, Bill, tell everybody where they can find your book. 
It's um, AmericanMinute.com, AmericanMinute.com. Well, folks, you have to go to American Minute. You have to go and put your email in and get the wonderful articles that Bill writes every day, which brings our history to current because our children are not learning history. And you know, everybody knows once you forget history, once you don't know it, you will repeat it. And as we learn from the stories of history, we are repeating the same thing over and over again. And the only way to stop that from happening is to learn the truth and to learn why things happen and why they happen and why they are happening the way that they are. But nothing is new. Slavery is not new. Slavery has been around for thousands of years. Every time uh, humanity succeeds, you will have those who will rise to the top. They will either be good leaders or bad leaders, and they will lead their countries or their groups or their areas into whatever it is that they're desiring is. And the whole problem is we, the people, especially in America, by not knowing our history, we will repeat it. And we can see that happening now, uh, especially as history is skewed so that people believe that America was the only slave country in the world, and therefore we owe everybody money. If you don't know history, as I said before, you will repeat it. But We have wonderful traditions, as Bill has just described also, and those are the ones that are worth repeating. So whether you're celebrating Christmas or Hanukkah or nothing at all, uh, be moral, respect your fellow humans, respect yourself. That's the most important. Those without respect for themselves cannot respect other people. But most of all, it's time to enjoy this holiday season and put things aside. They will come back. We know they will. They're not going anyplace. But this is the time to be with your family and to enjoy your family and prepare for what's coming in the future. Bill, I want to thank you so much for joining me today and telling us the story of Santa Claus. It's so important, and it is so important that people look at the books that Bill has written. Please, if you want to bring history forward, there are wonderful books that you will find on Bill's website. Please share them with your family. This is the only way, as we see Statues are being taken down. America's history is being put in the trash and it's being skewed into something that it's not. So only the truth will prevail. Bill, thank you for joining me. And you're going to have to come back and tell us some more stories. I'd love to. I'd love to. Bless you, Karen. Thank you, Uh, folks. Have a wonderful holiday and see you again next year. Although the show will continue, I will not be live uh, only because I'm having dental surgery in the next two weeks, not looking forward to that. And I will be recording a show that I think you will enjoy. And on Christmas, of course, we're going to be having some beautiful Christmas classical music, which depicts the Christmas mood and the Christmas spirit. So folks, you have been listening to Karen Schoen. This is the prism of America's education brought to you on on the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance. What a job the Alliance is doing and what work we have more to do. This is not over, folks. So enjoy, relax, and get ready. See you again next year. But I'll-